<clears throat> when I was a kid, I was part of the elementary school wrestling program at Garden Spot, and I competed in a few wrestling tournaments uh, around the Lancaster County area, and I actually won some trophies, although it seems that they mostly were the second and third place trophies. I, I actually only got first place once, and that was at an AAU wrestling tournament. I won the gold medal because I pinned the only other kid in my weight class, and I don't even think he was very good, honestly. So I, that, I wasn't very good. So I had, I had trophies for other things, uh, but several years ago I had a decision to make. What would I do with my trophies and my medals? And so I decided to snap pictures of them and then to dump them in the trash. And that's what I did. I have pictures of them all on my computer, but they, they are long gone. Now, maybe if I was a gold medalist, uh, Olympic wrestler, they would, would have been a little bit more significant, but I gave up wrestling and started basketball in the sixth grade, and, and I prefer basketball. So, Now, some might think that that, that was extreme. You know, come on, Jonathan, what about the nostalgia? What about your children? You can show the trophies to your children. I have pictures. They can look at that. Um, and, and if I would have kept the trophies, if you think about this, from uh, this is a sick standpoint of a 37-year-old who wants his ki- children to have the trophies to display in their house someday when they're 30 years old. Who, what kid is going to want to do that? They're just, they're not, uh, especially not my elementary school uh, AAU medal in first place. Sometimes we hold on to trophies, and not necessarily actual trophies, but our accomplishments, our awards, our accolades, and we attach disproportional significance to those things. We might actually draw self-worth from these things. We might feel good about ourselves or feel successful like we've accomplished something in life because of them. We might feel uh, that they define us in some way. We might even think that God accepts us because of, of all these trophies, of all these things that, that we have done. And the question is, are you holding on to any trophies or medals? Do you measure your goodness or your adequacy or identity because of what you've done or maybe what you haven't done are are you holding on to those trophies that you never won why does god accept you why does god consider you righteous in his sight and my hope is that the holy spirit would embed the gospel so deep within your heart that it becomes core to your identity instead of your performance it's either gospel or performance and i want the gospel to be deep down in your heart our righteousness is christ alone alone and here's the thought that i hope that the holy spirit embeds deep within your heart god accepts you and considers you righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith. Now let me repeat that. It's all important. God accepts you and considers you righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith. You contribute nothing to your salvation except your sin and your need of Christ. 
You have no righteousness outside of Christ. Therefore, the best news that you and I could hear on a morning like this is justification by faith alone. That's good news. That's really good news. We need that. Justification by faith alone. That Imagine this. God accepts you. God approves of you. God loves you because he credits the righteousness of Christ to you through faith and declares you positionally righteous in his sight. Grasp that. Our righteousness is Christ alone and all our trophies are loss. Count everything as loss. Count everything as loss. Regarding all the confidence Paul could have placed in his Jewish status and piety, he said... But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But then he added, indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything. And let me ask you this. What is not included in everything? Paul didn't mean everything was meaningless. He didn't mean everything was useless. Of course not. He counted or he rendered everything lost in regards to his righteousness or position before God because he knew that merit, his own merit, was completely insufficient to absolve him from the guilt that he bore. Paul needed to teach the Philippians justification by faith alone again because the Judaizers were adding circumcision, this this ceremonial law-keeping, to the gospel which posed a threat to the Philippians. Oh, how the human heart wants to justify itself. Itself. So be careful, my friends. Add up everything in your life, your parents, your birthplace, your education, your popularity, your reputation, your marriage, your parenting, your career, your talents, your generosity, your goals, your trophies. Add it all up. Add up all of your life. And understand this, none of it helps you win God's approval. None of it. None of it impresses God. None of it earns anything from God. You have no righteousness with which to satisfy God's justice. What will satisfy God's justice? You trying harder? You have no righteousness. So if you want God to look at you and to count you, to declare you as righteous instead of guilty, you cannot count on your righteousness in you. Any bit of righteousness that you may have or anything that you have done, you can't count on that. Instead, you need to receive a foreign righteousness. Justification by faith alone is all important for you. And I want to show you why. I want to make a case for you this morning. So here are five things from the text that show why it's worth it for you to suffer the loss of all things for Christ's sake. Here is why. Count everything as loss for the sake of gaining Christ because, number one, knowing Jesus is better than the sum total of everything else. Knowing Jesus is better than the sum total of everything else. Paul's rationale, verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of, here it comes, 
the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is better. He's way better. The supremacy of knowing Christ made the loss of all things totally worth it for Paul. Uh, People gladly give up inferior things to gain superior things in Christ. Now, let's say that you inherit two vacation homes, or one of two vacation homes. You have to choose, okay? You get to choose, and the address of the first is 9613 American Street. Sounds sweet. And the second is 90 Briar Patch Road. Now, which would you choose? Well, that, that's kind of hard because you have no idea about any of the properties. You just know what their address is. You don't know what they're like. But the more that I tell you about each property, the better you can ass- assess the value of those properties and then the better you can choose which one you want to inherit and make your decision. 9613, actual properties, two actual properties, look them up online. 9613 American Street is a 1,222-square-foot home with three bedrooms and two bathrooms in Detroit. The lot is 3,180 square feet. It's listed for $2,500 because it's dilapidated and it sits in the most violent neighborhood in America where, I kid you not, you have a one in seven chance of having a violent crime committed against you. Neighborhood number one. All right, 90 Briar Patch Road is an immaculate 80-year-old 10,000-square-foot Georgian revival home with six bedrooms and a 3,500-square-foot guest house with four more bedrooms. It sits on 11.2 acres of plush real estate in East Hampton, New York, and overlooks the Atlantic Ocean. This home is on the National Register of Historic Places. It comes with all kinds of wonderful, luxurious amenities, and its list price is around $140 million. Now, which would you prefer to inherit? If you're like, Detroit, I love the lions. There's something wrong with you because you could inherit the, the one in the north and sell it and then buy the Detroit home. You get the point. You would joyfully count the Detroit property loss, would consider it trash because of the surpassing worth and the surpassing opportunity of the East Hampton property, which would be your undeniable gain. Undeniable. But you need to know more than American Street or Briar Patch Road, or else how are you even going to know? To know the inestimable worth of Christ, you must know Christ. How can you know if you don't know him? Everything will be lost for someone who knows the surpassing worth of relationship with Christ. Consider that God has highly exalted him. That God has given him a name above all other names. That God has put him in a position where every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, our Lord, has complete and utter supremacy in all things. Paul said in Colossians 1.18 that in everything Jesus Christ is preeminent. Now, think of the privilege, the honor, the significance and the worth of saying, I know him. I know him. I know Jesus Christ, the Lord. 
I know the preeminent one of the universe. And he knows me. And we're tight. Knowing in verse 8 is actually a noun which represents an intellectual or a cognitive knowledge. When you truly know Christ, you are cognizant of the supreme value of knowing him. You know what you have. When you truly know Christ, wow. But it's more than cognitive knowledge. It's a deeply personal and it's a deeply relational knowledge. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Paul says, my Lord. Even the word for know in verse 10, which is a different one from verse 8, suggests this relational knowledge, this deep relational knowledge. Now, I'm a fan of Michael Buble, not going to lie. He's smooth just like Sinatra was smooth. And they can croon with the best of them. And Buble was interviewed by the Associated Press and asked about his faith and how when he was a child, he prayed in order to be successful and how that actually came about. And they talked to him about And I'm interested in what celebrities say about Jesus and the Bible and faith. And so this this grabbed my attention to hear this. Buble said this. Instead of making it about a certain God, I have a relationship with that one thing, the universe, God. You can call it Jesus or you can call it Jehovah. Call it whatever you want. Buddha if you want, whatever. Oh, Michael. That's really odd. It's interesting he used the word relationship. Can you have a relationship with something or some person that you don't really know at all? You don't even know how they're different from something else? Jesus is not some nebulous idea, meaning whatever you want it to mean. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is not a force. He is an eternally fascinating person who is knowable as he truly is. No one is free to fashion Jesus in in any way that they wish, in any way that they want to make him up to be. We must know Jesus as he actually and really is. Paul says in verse 3, to glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, which echoes something that God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah many, many years before. Listen to this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. To glory in Christ Jesus is to do more than cognitively be aware of him and that his relationship with him is, is so valuable. It's relationally knowing him as well. Close, intimate fellowship. We will boast in knowing him when we know him as supremely valuable. Now, please understand this. This is very important. You don't have to count all things lost. You don't have to. You can treasure everything more than you treasure Christ. But just understand that there's a downside. And the downside of doing that, which you are free to do is that you won't experience the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You give something up. Dr. William Hendrickson wrote this. Please listen closely. It's short. As long as one keeps clinging, even in the slightest degree, 
to his own righteousness, he cannot fully enjoy Christ's. Do you know how Philippians 3.8 goes for most people? It goes like this. Indeed, I count everything as gain because of the surpassing inferiority of knowing Christ who is absolutely nothing for me. For the sake of my pride and fleeting pleasure, I have suffered the loss of Christ and count him as worthless in order that I may lose my soul and sacrifice my joy forever. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There is no carefree way of saying this, my friends. Hell will be filled with people who valued everything else more than Christ. They refused to understand that he was their greatest game. Why is this church so deeply committed to leading people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things. Why above all things? Why do we have that in our mission statement, the very core of who we are as a church? Because all things are lost in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Count everything as lost for the sake of gaining Christ because number two, it glorifies Jesus when he is your greatest gain. It glorifies Jesus when he is your greatest gain. Notice why Paul counted his gain as loss in verse 7. For the sake of Christ, or you could say because of Christ. Same thing in verse 8. And I take Paul to mean two things. First, Paul had to renounce himself in order to gain Christ's righteousness, which he was glad to do because he, Christ, was superior, sufficient, and satisfying. Second, when Paul renounced himself for the sake of Christ... It glorified Christ. It showed Christ to be supremely valuable. For the sake of Christ seems to suggest for the glory of Christ. Because treasuring Christ more than than our own self-righteousness and I can do it attitude glorifies Christ because he is what we need. Now verse 8. Paul used some, some strong language to emphasize his point. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul suffered to gain Christ. I want you to think about that. When Paul became a Christian, he suffered the loss of the Jewish community. He suffered the loss of his Jewish status, the loss of his Jewish privilege, the loss of his Jewish fast track, and no doubt the loss of some really close Jewish friends. Paul became an enemy of Judaism, which was loss for Christ's sake. Now, he couldn't lose his circumcision. He couldn't lose his ethnic identity. He couldn't lose his education. So technically, he didn't actually lose all things, but he counted, he considered, he reckoned all things as loss. He described it all using scandalous language, skubalon, excrement, refuse, garbage, or something unwanted that you toss to the dogs. How ironic is that? Any self-righteousness or accomplishment that Paul had, he counted as disgusting crap. Why? In order to gain the supreme advantage of Christ, a gain which glorifies Christ. 
Paul really resonates Jesus here from Matthew 13, 44. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The person who joyfully sells all of their belongings to gain the treasure shows by their liquidation of all of their assets that the treasure that they want so much is of more value to them, which exalts the treasure. It shows the treasure to be more valuable. And so it is with Christ. Count everything as lost for the sake of gaining Christ because number three, God counts you righteous only, only when by faith you possess the imputed righteousness of Christ. Verse 9 is the core of this two-part message. This is like everything. You've got to get this point. This point is, is critical to the gospel. This point is critical to you knowing God. Paul suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that he could be found in Christ. Found in Christ. The prepositional phrase in Christ is quintessential Pauline theology. It refers to our union with Christ, our oneness with Christ that we experience by faith, through faith. To be in Christ is to experience oneness, unity, union. You are in him, he is in you, and God finds you in him, in Christ. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, They attempted to hide from God, which was completely foolish. When God was walking in the garden, he called out to Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He wanted an answer. And Adam and Eve were hiding in shame, in guilt, in regret. They didn't want to be in the presence of God. And when God found them, they were found in sin, They were found guilty. Their position before God had changed. No longer were they innocent, enjoying unobstructed intimacy with God. Now they were guilty. Now they were naked. Now they were ashamed, hindered from relational intimacy with God. Before driving them out of paradise, God shed blood in order to clothe Adam and Eve in animal skins, which did what? It covered their nakedness and their guilt and their shame. Many years later, God shed blood again, again, slaying his son in order to cover the guilt and shame of those who trust in his son. See, God dressed his own innocent son in the crimson robe of our sin, put it all on him poured out wrath on him, and then he took all of the righteousness of Christ and as a robe Pure and white and unstained, he wrapped it around us so that we could be counted as completely righteous just simply by wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. He did this so that we would be found in Christ, found without any stain, found without any wrinkle, found without any blemish. God dressed us in the righteousness of Christ alone. Listen again in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 9 is an explanation of justification by faith alone. 
the core doctrine of the gospel. It's right there. If you don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the gospel, and it's what Paul means here. Now, what does Paul mean by righteousness? This is important. Righteousness is being in a legal state of rightness or justice or moral blamelessness by the law's standard. Righteousness is being faultless under the law. Now, if you were in the courtroom and every thought and action of your entire life was fairly, that's an important word, examined by a judge, you would be declared righteous if and only if you had no guilt, no blame, no shame. In other words, you would need to be perfectly conformed to every last nuance of the law. Otherwise, you are not righteous. We all know what we are. We're guilty. We're guilty. Paul referenced not having any righteousness of his own that comes from the law, or you could say, that comes from observing the law. Observing the law could not make Paul righteous before God because Paul, like you and me, and like everybody else, was born under the law with original sin and guilt. Then our actual sin, the things that we do, not only our culpability, but now we're actually doing sin, is just compounding our guilt. Isaiah 64, verse 6 is right. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So clearly, the righteousness that Paul had in these verses did not originate in him. It was external. And don't get confused with verse 6, in case you're remembering what he said there, where Paul said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, as a self-description. Well, that was this religious or this ceremonial faithfulness. It wasn't perfection. He knew that. He would do sacrifices. He knew he needed repentance. The next phrase advances uh, Paul's thought, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So the righteousness that Paul had was not from him, but was a foreign or an alien righteousness that came to him. He said it came to him through faith or through trusting in God. His righteousness was a kind of righteousness that could only be possessed by trusting Christ. That's the only way you're going to get it. So what is this foreign righteousness? Paul said, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Saints, this is the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect and without fault. He never misstepped. He never sinned. He did everything right. He did everything his father asked him to do. And God gives us that righteousness as if we had done it by simply trusting Christ. Admitting, I don't have it. I need that. So give it to me, and so I'll just trust you so that I can have it. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31 say this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. He became righteousness for us. And sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the 
Lord. Through trust in Christ, Christ becomes our righteousness and our cause for boasting. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5 say this. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You earned it. Take it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Why would you want a righteousness that fails? You can't handle that. You need a righteousness that is perfect in every way, and the only way you're going to get that is through trusting in Christ. The only way to be considered righteous by God is to have the foreign righteousness of Christ imputed to you through trusting in Christ alone. You can't work for the righteousness that you need. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I love, explains it like this. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons us all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. To say that righteousness is imputed to us is to say righteousness is credited to us, righteousness is attributed to us as we trust in Christ. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness, but God regards it as if it is ours. Even though we are still imperfect, and you have to hear this, even though we continue to sin, even though I know Jonathan will fail you and I will fail other people, I'll fail God, it's coming, I know it. I'm... Even though... When God looks at us believers, those who trust in Christ, he looks through the righteousness of Christ and he sees righteous. They're righteous. Even if I'm a sinner, God, even if I know I'm going to mess up, I'm looking through Christ. What I see is righteous. It's a positional righteousness. It's who we are. It's our status in Christ. He sees us not as partly righteous. He sees us Not as three-quarter, he sees this as 100% righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Galatians 2, verse 16, destroys any self-confidence. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. You can't work it out. You can't do good things enough to please God. You cannot. You will not. But through faith in Jesus Christ... So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is just pounding and pounding. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. Christ has done it. And if you trust in him to do it for you, you have it. It's all yours. Take it. Now this is counterintuitive. Do you know why? Because deep down in your heart and in my heart, we want to do it ourselves. I want the credit. I want to be great. Have you seen what I've done? Look at what they've done. You are nothing compared to what I've done. That's in the human heart. It goes so deep. We want to say we did it. Salvation just happens to be not like that at all. (laughs) If that's the demeanor you have of why you're saved, you proved you're not. We can't do it. So trying hard won't cut it. Being good won't cut it. Making New Year's resolutions to just finally get it right this year won't cut it. We need to receive something we don't have. It is in Christ alone. It's a righteousness that comes from God and receiving that foreign righteousness depends entirely on trusting Jesus Christ. And when we trust in him, we know we have it. You can rest. 
I just don't need to perform for you, God, although I want to because I love you, but I know I, I have Jesus. He's all I need. And just in case we think that faith is something that we do in order to merit the response of God's great salvation as, as somehow a meritorious work, we must remember that Philippians 1.29, which says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you believe. So faith is an effective gift that God gives to us that then works to justify us. It's all God. And yes, we're part of it. But it doesn't originate from us. Count everything as lost for the sake of gaining Christ because number four, you will be united to Christ. You'll notice I have a little R in there and that's for those of you who already believe. You are united to Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish for these reasons. To gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ, to know the power of the resurrection of Christ, to share in the sufferings of Christ, to be like him in his death. It all comes back to union with Christ. We are united to him in knowledge. We are united to him in the power of his resurrection. We are united to him in his sufferings. We are united to him in his death. The power of his resurrection liberates us from the power of sin and the power of death. And it promises resurrection to eternal life the word share is koinonia here again it shows up back in chapter 1 verse 29 not only did god grant faith but god grants suffering for christ when we suffer for christ we identify with him and our oneness with him is confirmed and we are assured of our union as he sustains us through our great suffering for his sake It proves him to be worthy and that we're his when we suffer well the apostle peter said this but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice? Why would I want to rejoice in suffering? He tells us that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There is a connection between suffering, sharing in Christ's suffering now, and the gladness in his glorious return then. Through suffering, Paul was becoming like Jesus in his death which I think means Paul was being conformed to the image of Christ, into his humble and selfless image. Look what Jesus did in his death, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, which we saw it describes this radical humility, radical sacrifice and selflessness, and Paul was confirming to that, or was conforming to that. Suffering the loss of all things and counting them as garbage is is so worth it for you and me because we are united... to Christ by faith, and we know and will know the power of his resurrection. Even suffering works to conform us to Christ, which is the essence of true joy, just being like him. Here's the last point. Count everything as lost for the sake of gaining Christ because number five, you will attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul was dead set on being raised to eternal life and glory with Christ. Verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted it. He wanted it so deep within himself. He wanted to attain it. He wanted to arrive at that great resurrection. And he was glad to suffer the loss of of everything in order to gain Christ and therein the resurrection to eternal life with Christ or eternal life of knowing Christ. 
Paul said in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's it. The resurrection, my friends. We will attain the resurrection from the dead just like Christ. It's only a matter of time. Time. That's it. There's a lot of pain that comes in between there. I understand that. But it's just time, my friends. Whoever believes in Christ, though he die, yet shall he live. Live. Christ promised that. That's for you. Being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone means the resurrection from the dead is ours. A new body is ours. A new heaven is ours. A new earth is ours. A new existence of knowing Christ fully without anything like sin getting in the way is ours. Suffering the loss of all things is worth it. It's worth it. The resurrection. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If righteousness dwells in the new heavens and the new earth, how on earth will we be able to be there? You're not righteous. You have no hope of heaven whatsoever. And neither do I. Until we learn something called justification by faith alone, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ alone because because of Christ's righteousness, we are counted positionally righteous. He is working on us to conform us to Christ and one day we will be fully conformed to Christ. We will be righteous and we will be welcomed in to the new heavens and the new earth all because of Christ. We now are righteous at that point that we can enter in because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's it. Late pastor, and I'll end with this, late pastor and theologian J. Sidlow Baxter said this. Please listen closely. This is a great way to end. No man who is full of himself can ever truly preach the Christ who emptied himself. That's good. That's really good. No man who is full of himself full of his own righteousness and goodness, can ever truly preach the Christ who emptied himself. And let me just change that slightly a bit and, and close with this. No man, is, no man who is full of himself can ever truly trust in Christ who emptied himself, and that is to his eternal loss. Our righteousness is Christ alone. All the rest is loss. He is our greatest gain. And saints, he is enough. He is enough. Let's pray. God, thank you for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us based on nothing we have done. Oh, that is awesome because it showcases your sovereign grace and your goodness as God some people wonder if you exist. They wonder if you're good at all because they look at evil and they say, look at all that. How could there be a good God? But if evil exists, then that assumes good exists. And if good exists, that means that this morality that we understand that's built in, that, that I should be doing this, that morality, where does that come from? It has to come from a moral lawgiver, which is you. And because you're righteous and because you're just, you will condemn every last evil that has been committed in the history of the universe. You will win. You will reign over it all. And it will either be punished in eternity in hell or it will be 
absolved completely in the cross because Jesus paid for it. One of the two. And so, God, I pray that we look to your righteousness and we rejoice because all of the righteousness of Christ is counted as ours. We have it as a gift. God, thank you for Christ. Amen.